Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 35. Last time on the podcast, we talked about Homer's Iliad, book 10. And so this podcast will feature Homer's Iliad, book 11, part 1. And so what happened in the last episode? Well, we experienced the famous Dolinea. And during the Dolinea, we, it, we, we saw a spy mission sent out by both the Achaeans as well as the Trojans. The Trojans choosing Dolon, or rather Hector choosing Dolon after uh, appealing to his avarice by offering a fine gift and Dolon uh, accepting, but then also demanding an even finer gift, Achilleus's horses, which I commented on suggesting that uh, might indicate to a competent leader that Dolon has unreasonable expectations and therefore poor judgment and would not be a perfect or ideal or even good choice or adequate choice for um, the position as spy out in the night. Well, the Achaeans, under the help, with the help of Nestor, wisdom, he they choose Odysseus and Diomedes, who are the absolute best individuals to go out. They catch Dolon, they squeeze him for information, they kill a troop of Thracians, they come back gloriously. There is some hope in the hearts of the Achaean, the Achaeans, even though they know that the next day is going to be difficult. And so that next day has come in Book 11, and so it begins with hate, the Lady of Sorrow standing on the top of Odysseus's ship. And recall that Odysseus's ship stands in the middle, whereas Aias the Greater and Achilleus, trusting in the, the, the strength of their arms, they have their ships on the uttermost edges, the most uh, vulnerable uh, spots, because those would be the, the points at which they could be easily attacked. And so Aias the Greater ships next to Protosileuses are actually going to be the ones that Hector comes uh, comes close to burning. And one might also understand this to mean that Aias the Greater and Achilleus represent the sort of older ideal of uh, manliness and manhood and strength and battle, whereas Odysseus is showing the more um, the more developed or more mental, more competent, more generally competent individual as the emerging ideal. It's actually interesting. I, I know this might be, seem like a bizarre connection, but I, you can even recognize that sort of idea existing in our culture, uh, our culture meaning contemporary world culture uh, in this instance, in the game Pokemon in one of the cities, I believe it's Saffron City in the original red and blue, there there's a karate gym where there are fighting types of Pokemon. And well, that gym has lost its status as gym to a psychic gym because the psychic type Pokemon crush the fighting type, which means those who are capable of thinking crush those who are simply capable of brutish force. And it's interesting that that idea still, of course, exists um, today, as it did back in the time of uh, the Iliad, in which, of course, if thoughts do reveal themselves through manifold examples, um, then, well, a thought probably lasts for quite a bit of time. And so, Agamemnon starts to arm, and something interesting about his arming is uh, the theme of three seems to come back again and again, and so he has three serpents at his neck as he puts on his corslet. He has a gorgon head on his shield, which is accompanied by terror and hate. And remember, we identified the the picture of the gorgon, the gorgon's stare that causes fright um, and, um, and and motionlessness uh, as the stare of nature 
and, uh, which can stop one in its tracks, like a deer in the headlights. It's pure nature, uh, uh, nature in the sense of seeing a predator who stops you cold and makes you shiver. And that is what people see when they see Agamemnon and his shield. And that's because he's sort of like an image of God as a representation of Zeus on earth as a king and as a new sort of king over many sort many other kings. So he represents almost a religious experience in seeing him, which is what Dr. Jordan B. Peterson actually says is a religious experience when one uh, observes the dominance hierarchy and all its glory and is humbled by it and the experience of seeing a king who represents the dominance hierarchy and that which is highest on it would of course have such a humbling effect on somebody or terrifying especially on a battlefield and so he has a gorgon head on his shield as well as a three-headed snake and the three-headed snakes heads are looking backwards which means that it's a symbol of an ouroboros uh, a symbol of a snake which eats itself which represents something like the chaos which surrounds the known world that all humans live within and that new things anomalous occurrences constantly happen and we never know where they're going to come from and so the Ouroboros represents the destructive nature of uh, nature which can come from nowhere uh, in conjunction with the Gorgon face which represents the, the the predatory face of nature which can destroy one and so um, Agamemnon's fairly terrifying looking he also has two horns on the top of his helmet so uh, with a plume so he looks very kingly very distinguished and is very much the representation of Zeus on earth and in fact he's so Zeus like he's excuse me so Zeus like that uh, Zeus will command Hector through Iris not to engage in the on the field of battle while Agamemnon is there, which is a clear homage to the the power and strength of Agamemnon uh, in that uh, Zeus is essentially saying, if you engage with him, I cannot protect you. And so Agamemnon is going to show his superior strength on the battlefield today. And so just to add to the situation and the scene setting, Hera and Athena make thunder crash about Agamemnon and then because there's going to be some dead, there's going to be some death today. Zeus drips blood dew from the sky, and uh, the next time he does something like that, he'll actually be crying the blood dew, and it will be d due to the death of his son in Book 16. And so, well, this is going to be a special day, but not a very special day for the Achaeans. Well, it will be special in that it will be different, but not special in any. Uh, in this positively connoted sense of the word. So Hector and his cap captains then prepare to fight. Pulidamas, the his advisor. Aeneas, the leader of the Dardanians. And then three, the next three are sons of Antenor. And so remember that three theme and the fact that Agamemnon was tethered to three with the, the, uh, uh, the, the serpents next to his neck as well as the serpents uh, with their heads turned backwards on a shield. And so they're Polybus. Agenor and Acamas. And actually, that's a sort of funny uh, mistake. Those are three uh, sons of Antenor. However, um, Agamemnon is going to encounter and kill three different sons of Antenor a little bit later on. So, that, a funny correction there. So, 
Line 64 and 65 in Book 11, Hector will be shining amongst the foremost and the backmost. He's everywhere today. So like a star, he appears here. Like a star, he appears there. Wherever he's needed and wherever the Achaeans do not want him to be, that's where he's going to be today. And so the battle begins. The Achaeans and the Trojans fight like wolves, and neither side panics. And so they're equally valiant today and disciplined. Hate the Lady of Sorrow glories in this, but none of the other gods attend to the slaughter. All the gods are angry that Zeus is favoring the Trojans because Zeus as the principle of justice and the dominance hierarchy within which they all strive and struggle has to maintain fairness and therefore balance. And so when he favors um, uh, one side and then bans all the other gods from doing what it is they do, he's essentially denaturing them and keeping them from doing that which they naturally uh, do and seek to do um, so it is not the usual sort of situation for them to simply be seen hate on the battlefield and no other gods, especially given what we've seen in book five. It's a strange situation. Um, and we, sh we should understand that it's strange by the fact that Zeus actually gives a proclamation in book eight indicating that the gods can't fight anymore. So even though the gods are all angry at Zeus, Zeus does not care. He's off by himself, glorying in the pride of his strength and doing his fate decrees. And, well, of course the other gods resent it, but um, basically that resentment's just being passed down the line because Zeus is doing as fate requires, and therefore he is doing what he is required to do in order to restrain the other gods uh, from getting in the way of fate. And so... Zeus has got to do what Zeus has got to do in order to maintain justice. So, back down to the battlefield. Agamemnon has his Aristea, and recall that an Aristea is a period of excellence in battle. comes from the Greek word aristos, where we get the um, political system terminology uh, or term uh, aristocrat or arist aristocracy, ruled by the best, which often devolves into a plutocracy or rule by the wealthy or rather oligarchy ruled by the few rather than simply uh, the virtuous few as the idea goes. And so Agamemnon kills several Trojans including a, a man named Oileus who in lines 95 to 98 has his brain spattered forth. And then he goes on to kill two sons of Priam, one illegitimate and one le legitimate. And Homer, uh, like usual, gives us interesting details like those. Uh, the illegitimate son, Esos, and the legitimate son, Antiphos. And illegitimacy meant the, that uh, one of these uh, men would have been had by a woman who was not Hecuba, the wife of um, Priam. And Priam has many concubines, and he has something like 50 sons and 100 daughters, and 19 of his sons are by Hecuba. So he is certainly an Asiatic king and that he does not uh, exemplify the traditional Western values, one might say. And you might say, well, uh, neither does Agamemnon, neither do Achilleus, neither do any of the men taking concubines. And that is to some extent true, but uh, <clears throat> I think in this case, the issue is the manner of excess. Priam has openly and excessively um, uh, taken several wives in several ways. and In fact, actually, the issue of concubines will come up in the Athenian playwrights. Um, uh, for example, when Andromache is brought back by Neoptolemus to his home, his, his new wife, Hermione, will not care for her one bed and will conspire to kill her, uh, indicating that there is sort of a shifting norm 
in, in the West, e even as far back as, um, well, at least Athenian culture, certainly Athenian culture, by that time there was marriage and it was um, different from Homer's time. But um, there does seem to be some sort of, there does seem to be a major difference in how marriage worked, at least amongst those who were most elite. And though I do say that, Agamemnon, when he does die by his wife's hand, will have brought back, uh, as a concubine, Cassandra, the daughter of Troy. And so, very, very interesting. And exceptions always abide. So Agamemnon gets back to his killing, and he kills the sons of Antimachus, Pisandros and Hippolochus, for their father's evil counsel to kill Menelaus and Odysseus when they first came to Troy as envoys. And so, when... The men first, when the Achaeans first arrived with their thousand ships to Troy, they sent as envoys Menelaus and Odysseus, as we heard back in book three from Antenor, to request, or rather demand, because they had a thousand ships at their back, the return of Helen. And so apparently there was a Trojan Antimachus who actually suggested that they just keep Odysseus and Menelaus there and kill them. And perhaps then the Achaeans would leave. And so this would have outrageously doubled their blood guilt or their guilt in terms of trespassing upon the Xenia because of course the first of course the first way they did this was through Paris's initial taking of the wife of Menelaus who was putting him up as a guest in the first place. And so the Trojans truly would have had two black marks against their name had they done that. And Agamemnon seems to remember this just fine. And so he has no problem killing these individuals. He seems, in this, in this case, you, you might say that Agamemnon here embodies justice in that these, this individual trespassed against the Xenia. Zeus, working through Agamemnon, therefore disciplines these men by doling out to them their just desserts. So, okay. And so this is how Hippolychus dies, and I always read this to the students because it gets good laughs, because while they're looking for something interesting and anomalous when they're in school, and this is certainly one of those things. Hippolychus sprang away, but Atreides killed him dismounted, cutting away his arms with a sword stroke, free of the shoulder, and sent him spinning like a log down the battle. Lines 145 to 148. So Hippolychus rolls like a log. Agamemnon is truly embodying justice as Hades in the form of the reaper of souls and thus the ultimate judge in this case. And so he, he basically hews off the arms of this guy, Hippolychus, and then kicks him down the battle, and he rolls like a log, and that's the actual description of Homer through the translation of Richmond Lattimore, which is uh, pretty funny. It, it also seems to show that Agamemnon seems to be in a pretty bad mood today and is uh, sort of brutally killing people in a Marianne-style way, and um, actually this will not be his last brutal kill. He's, he's going to continue to act in this sort of way, so you might, you might understand him to be feeling the pressure right now, and not only knowing that he has to perform very well, but is acting slightly barbarically and violently because of his increased, uh, uh, in the increased stress that has been uh, pushed on him through the absence of Achilles.
And so the Trojans even begin to retreat slightly under the force of Agamemnon, but only as far past the fig tree as the Scyan gates, where once Hector tried to endure Achilles and almost died. And so Agamemnon's grim work is described, he's described as having invincible hands, as recall Zeus, uh, with his unconquerable hands that he mentions in Book 1 when he threatens uh, Hera that he'll lay his unconquerable hands on her if she doesn't sh essentially stop speaking to him at that moment before Hephaestus gets between them. And so uh, Agamemnon has invincible hands spattered with bloody filth. And so you, you have this pristine image of a golden, invincible warrior, but also spattered in filth. And recall his, his beautiful and ornate armor. And something about his armor is it's covered in metal, precious metals. And so he looks like a million bucks, but he also looks like the dread war god covered in, in human, human blood and, and f well, whatever manner of filth has been, whatever sort of mud and dirt and sand have made their way onto him. And so... He's an admixture of a force of nature and like a force of God at this moment. And just to give sort of evidence, at least of the force of God here, um, uh, this is when Zeus sends Iris to tell Hector to hold back until Agamemnon is injured. And like I said earlier, this clear indication of Agamemnon's superior stature as an abil and ability as a, a, a fighter and potentially even as a, a leader as well. So, but certainly as a fighter, because the fear would be that Hector would would try to stand against Agamemnon, and the superior man would defeat him. Um, so, Homer then invokes the muse, lines two eighteen to two twenty, to list men that Agamemnon kills. And well, we thought he'd already gotten started killing, but apparently not. Tell me now, you muses who have your homes on Olympus. Who was the first to come forth and stand against Agamemnon of the very Trojans, or the renowned companions in battle? Well, that first person happens to be Iphidamus, and, well, he just wed, and he's a son of Antenor, too, and, well, he stabs into the corselet of Agamemnon, and he gets so close to killing him, but the metal bends backwards at the war belt. And a, a funny, interesting little biographical note that Homer includes, and recall that I mentioned that Homer will often include these biographical notes to show um, the, the atrocity and the horror of war, taking people from out from their lives, putting them in this new um, uh, dangerous game that often strips their lives from them and strips them from a story in which they were playing a very interesting and integral part. And so something he mentions is that um, if Adamus had not yet gotten any delight from his wife, even though he had paid much for her, so he in sort of like a Jacob-like way had paid out um, something, it was either a hundred or a thousand oxen, it was, an, a, it was an extraordinary amount, and yet all that work, all that effort, all that money that went in to uh, striving to get this woman, and he had never even gotten, he had not yet gotten his investment, uh, gotten from his investment what he had put into it, one might say. And uh, yeah, you, you might say that that means that he had intended to have a wonderful life with this lady, and that's why he had worked so hard, and so all his work was for naught because he gets killed in this war. And so it's almost as if war can rob a conscientious individual of his investment of time and energy uh, because it robs him of his future. And that's certainly the case with Iphidamus. 
And so Koan, the eldest of the three individuals who have just been killed. So another correction, it's not three of um, uh, uh, Antonor's sons who die, but two in this instance. So first off who dies is Iphidamus, and Koan perceiving this is very much saddened. And so he strikes with a spear that has the wind speed, and so Agamemnon could only be injured by somebody who moves as fast as the wind. Even though he's a son of Antenor, we will notice that he is, uh, uh, this Koan character is certainly a minor character because he's just been introduced out of nowhere, and he's he's no one like a Sarpedon or an Aeneas or, or a Hector in terms of rank. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, well, he strikes Agamemnon underneath the elbow, and since a minor character has just harmed a major character, yes, you recall the principle, whenever a minor character harms a major character, that minor character dies almost immediately, very soon after, and actually Agamemnon stabs him immediately he cuts the head uh he he stat he 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 unmans him he unstrings him he kills him and then he cuts off his head over his brother and again this is uh the sort of behavior that you might notice he's uh uh, uh indi indicating that agamemnon is feeling stressed and is thus acting in sort of a jerkish manner um cutting off this individual's head right next to his brother and sort of making a symbolic uh, move of this. And well, um, even though Agamemnon has been injured, he continues to fight and fling stones until the injury, until his blood starts to go cold, until he starts to cool off, and then he starts to feel the pains more. And having been an athlete my entire life, I can say that that's a very interesting thing that he notices, uh, that he observes, which I would say is true to life, that um, while you're playing a sport, like say basketball, for example, and you're in the heat of the moment, you don't feel anything, but afterwards, your feet, your hips, everything hurts. And the, you know, when you start to get cold, and it's very, very interesting. Um, undoubtedly, the reason why you have uh, those bikes next to basketball courts for pro and uh, high-level college games. So, Agamemnon then retreats to heal. He summons his charioteer like his limo and encourages the men to keep fighting in his absence. So he gives them a message of hope as he leaves rather than a message of despair as we've seen him uh, a couple times do. Once, once in jest and once as a suggestion in assembly which Diomede spoke against. But so um, in this battle, Agamemnon is the first person to get injured or the first Achaean to get injured, but he will not be the last one. And so as he leaves, Hector summons the Trojans, whom he leads, the Lycaeans, led by Sarpedon, and the Dardanians, led by Aeneas, to assault. And he summons them in a great voice. And he has a mini Aristea himself, lines 300 to 304. And so a quick review is that Agamemnon had his Aristea. And ah, here's where three comes in. This is what I meant to say. It's not that he killed three sons of Antenor, but he killed three pairs of brothers, is what Agamemnon had done. Pesandrus and Hippolochus, Iphidamus and Koan, and Esos and Antiphus, the sons of Priam. So those, um, we recall the three serpents with their heads turning backwards as a symbol of nature, also potentially as a symbol of nature as time, as time taking that back which it gives, like the Pieta, uh, 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 the sculptures of Mary holding Jesus, her as Mother Nature, taking back the gift that she gave, uh, which would be the actions and the choices which man give when he consciously accepts his suffering and his limitation within the world and therefore gives that which he is capable of giving and is therefore a gift from Mother Nature in that he is born from nature through an individual. 
woman. And so that is essentially <clears throat> the same idea as Kali, um, who in, in popular statues, statues is sometimes shown as having just given birth to a man and already being eating his, um, his intestines, which indicates that the moment you start living, you are already being devoured by time, which is also illustrated by the, um, the figure of Kronos. Um, eating his own Olympian children, who were though greater than he was, he he was he was going to consume them, and so uh, the represent representation of nature as a uh, or time as nature in its consuming capacity, and that it consumes and eats all things. You just need to give it the, give it enough time. Is um, is being borne out here by the three pairs of brothers, who are. Who are killed by Agamemnon. Well, so he was injured in the elbow, left the field, and then Hector, counseled by Zeus through Iris, launches a full-out assault after Agamemnon leaves the battle. And so Odysseus and Diomedes stand against the assault, and now there might have been havoc and hopeless things done. Now the running Achaeans might have tumbled back into their own ships had not Odysseus cried out to Tidius, his son Diomedes, we should be ashamed to let Hector capture our vessels. And Diomedes then warns that, well, Zeus is actually against them, and, well, both continue to stand. And so, what does this mean? Well, Agamemnon has left the battle, which indicates that the symbol of the dominance hierarchy and, that, and, and the top of the dominance hierarchy has left, ha, ha, uh, no longer is on the battlefield, which means that the two um, aspects of Athena, Diomedes and Odysseus, Odysseus uh, representing the stabilizing function of the dominance hierarchy and Diomedes the ascending function of the dominance hierarchy. Well, if the symbol of the dominance hierarchy, Agamemnon, is no longer there, well, then they can no longer appropriately function. So we should expect that if men are going to be injured, that it should be these two. And in fact, it should be Diomedes first, because first, the ability to ascend leaves. Uh, second, the ability to stabilize leaves. And actually, the next person to go will be a healer. And what his ability is, is to get people back into the game itself, and into the dominance hierarchy, maintenance or striving, which I would say is um, on a range the just at a different pole uh, uh, from stabilizing. So, Diomedes and Odysseus, though without Agamemnon, both kill several opponents, And but even when they see Hector this time around, even though Diomedes has uh, almost killed Hector before uh, aiming at him with a spear and hitting Eniopius, uh, one of his three charioteers from um, the last battle. And so, Diomedes shivers but though he shivers he overcomes that and he again takes a shot at hector and in fact he his spear uh is thrown at hector's head and it hits but does not penetrate because well it's apollo's gift the helmet of hector and so even though a perfectly aimed spear is thrown at his head and hit by die and diomedes gets a perfect hit on him essentially he doesn't get a kill so this is the second time Diomedes has come close to catching uh, Hector. Uh, and so book 8 and book 11 have, or books 8 and 11 have been good to him, uh, but not as good as they could be. And well, so Diomedes actually goes from almost uh, uh, feeling the 
the exaltation of ultimate victory to now feeling utter humiliation because he gets shot. And who does he get shot by? He gets shot by Paris. And where does he get shot? He gets shot through the foot, which even though that hurts, it's a fairly minor injury. And it, it's such a terrible shot by Paris. And then Paris uh, gives Diomedes the indignity to, to, to yell out and to brag over him at the fact that he has shot and injured him. And uh, Diomedes actually responds uh, very famously, uh, lines 385 to 395. Let me read those to you right now. And uh, well, after Odysseus then pulls out the, the arrow from Diomedes' foot, we'll close for the day. You archer, foul fighter, lovely in your locks, ever ire of young girls. If you were to make trial of me in strong combat with weapons, your bow would do you no good at all, nor your close showered arrows. Now you have scratched the flat of my foot and even boast of this. I care no more than if a witless child or a woman had struck me. This is the blank weapon of a useless man, no fighter. But if one is struck by me only a little, that is far different. The stroke is a sharp thing and suddenly lays him lifeless. And that man's wife goes with cheeks torn in lamentation and his children are fatherless while he staining the soil with his red blood rots away and there are more birds than women swarming about him. And so it reminds one of Conan, or rather Conan should remind one of the Iliad where he says, I wish to hear the lamentations of your women. And so Domity says that if Paris had actually come against him, not as a foul fight, uh, archer, but as a one-on-one -on -one combatant with swords, that Diomedes would have laid him flat with even the weakest stroke of his, and that he considers Paris nothing more than, our, or he considers him no more even than he would consider uh, uh, an invalid child or a woman, which to him indicates the weakest possible individuals, which means that he says Paris is the weakest possible individual, and he's ugh, deeply disgusted by the fact that Paris has managed to hit him. Well, so Odysseus pulls the arrow out from Diomedes' foot. And so, again, first, Agamemnon's symbol of authority or power or the dominance hierarchy, he's gone. Next, the ability to climb the dominance hierarchy is gone. And so one might suspect that Odysseus, who then works to stabilize uh, the situation, uh, as well as the dominance hierarchy, by pulling the arrow out of uh, uh, Diomedes' foot and showing his capacity as a minor healer in that respect, or at least as a functional helper in a tr in a, a difficult uh, and emergency situation, while well, Odysseus is then left alone on the battlefield. And because of his intelligence, he, he considers fighting or fleeing. But in his hesitation, he's then pinned in by five Trojans, and well... While that happens, he kills five more men, and well, whether he'll have enough to survive this or not, and where he's going to get, we'll have to wait until next time. So, this has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. This has been Homer's Iliad, Book 11, Part 1. We talked about uh, Agamemnon's Aristea today, Hector's mini Aristea, and response, the work of Diomedes and Odysseus, and we saw several brave Achaeans, including both Diomedes and Agamemnon, receive injuries, minor injuries, but injuries big enough to get them off the battlefield. And so, 
we know that today is going to be a hard day for the Achaeans, and it's still got a long way to go. And so in part two, we'll see just how much worse a dark day can get. Have a wonderful day.